Welcome to another episode of The Quad Pod, a podcast highlighting life at Baylor School in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Inspired by the many converging paths on our campus where faculty, staff, students, alumni, and families meet, we bring you stories from all angles, told by many voices. I'm Karai Stagall, and I'm in the class of 2022, and I'll be your host for this episode. On this episode, we'll look at how the school's community is responding to social outcries for justice after the protest against racially motivated violence that erupted this past summer. We'll speak to students and alumni about what it is like to be Black at Baylor, and we'll hear plans from the administration about how to shape a better future for all Baylor students. And now, Episode 3, One House, One Campus. Before we begin this episode, a warning to all the listeners— Some of what you are about to hear may trouble you, but in the words of the late John Lewis, we feel it's necessary, good trouble, so we ask you to open your heart. First, let's reflect on the summer that was. 911, Operator Harris, where is your emergency? I don't don't know what's happening. Somebody kicked in the door and shot my girlfriend. (laughs) My God. Can you check and see where she's been shot at? I can't get on her stomach. No, okay. Is, oh is she alert and able to talk to you? No, Bree. Okay. Oh, my It's been three and a half months since Ahmaud Arbery was chased and gunned down by three white men while out for a jog. And now new details about the moments leading up to his death are adding to the pain. According to the lead investigator, the man who shot Arbery stood over him as he lay dying and uttered a racial slur. This morning, a man is dead after being arrested by Minneapolis police and video has emerged online with many people upset about how officers handled the situation. This year has been hard for everyone, but I wonder if folks have really stopped to think about how hard it's been for the African-American students at school. Not only do we have to deal with the COVID precautions, but this summer we had to see multiple people that look like us be killed and not given justice. How are others feeling about it? Senior Elijah Howard took to the quad back in September to find out. Here's his report. Black life for so long were kind of as three-fifths of a person. This movement is trying to articulate that we should be respected as five-fifths of a person. Black lives doesn't mean only black lives matter. It means all lives matter, too. So I went around and asked a few fellow students and faculty how they felt about the movement, and this is what they had to say. We're nice to each other. I think it's long overdue. 
How about that? I mean, I, I really do. I think we've, you know, we've still got a long way to go. Hopefully we're starting to get in the right direction. It is something that we should all be educated about. I am hoping to work towards the future of making equalities for all. And I think it was good for, like, for instance, like, it opened my eyes to a lot of things because I'm, like, a white kid from, like, the country, like, actually. So I think it had a good cause, and it opened a lot of people's eyes and, like, a lot of my friends. Talk to the Senate and the government and other people higher than us. You can go further. I think it's good that it's being brought to light because there's a lot of improvement that we could have as a country for Black Lives Matter. Very needed. It's been going on for too long and there needed to be some change. Something that's been way overdue. And it's good to see a lot of people, not just our race, everybody coming out and speaking up. I'm Elijah Howard and thank you for listening. It was evident from the first day on campus that Baylor had given considerable thought to how to safeguard us from the virus as best as possible. Were there similar plans in place to respond to the increased emphasis on social justice and tolerance that were coming out of Black communities in America? Elijah sat down with Headmaster Scott Wilson next to find out. I'm Elijah Howard, class of 2021. Hi, Scott Wilson, Headmaster Baylor School. Can you comment on what Baylor is doing to become a more... Um, welcoming and tolerant environment for students. I've always felt like Baylor was a welcoming place for all students. Um, on the heels of the you know tragedies that we all went through as a country this past summer, it inspired a lot of conversation from uh, especially our African American. Uh, alums and and members of our faculty and staff. And uh, it was clear to me through some of those conversations that we weren't as welcoming for all of our African-American students as we would aspire to be. So uh, we embarked on a, a journey that will explore you know, the quality of the African-American experience at Baylor, and we'll do everything we can to make it a better one. As soon as I came to Baylor, um, I wasn't sure how much I'll fit in with the other fellow students, but as soon as I came on the football team, um, I felt like a family. You know, I made a lot of brothers, a lot of great relationships, and that looking forward, like, in the future that um, I'll take advantage of, and, you know, just, you know, very, 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 um, appreciative of um, coming here and um, getting acclimated to the college environment. Also, you know, meet a lot of great people that, um, such as yourself, you know, um, looking forward to building a relationship um, down the road. Well, I'm glad you feel that way. And to be honest with you, the conversations with most alums and most, most Baylor families have been very appreciative of Baylor, but there are areas where we've, I, we've, begun to identify where we can do better. You know, I'm charged, the Board of Trustees is charged, we're all charged with making Baylor better every day and there are ways we can. And so that's what we're, that's what we're working on. We've uh, hired a consultant's the wrong word. I think he's more of a shepherd. Um, and he, he's, uh, his name is Derek Young. He's worked on diversity and inclusion work for his whole career. And he's helping us take this journey. He's helping us talk with 
students, alums, faculty, um, you know, parents on how we can we can be a more welcoming, more sensitive place to all students. And and our focus has been students of color. So I'm I'm hopeful and excited about where where that'll take us. I think it'll make us a better school. The the first African American student at Baylor back in the seventies, a young man named Monty Brule. He's not young anymore. Um, he's a friend of mine, and um, and Monty would tell you he had a great experience here. That people took him in, just you know. Um, but again, he also knows that there are ways Baylor can can do a better job and and uh you know that's that's what we're trying to do in his interview mr wilson acknowledges that baylor needs to do better about welcoming their african-american students into its culture and that is very important it is important because he is recognizing that improvements can be made and the first step to solving a problem is to accept that one exists baylor definitely has areas that they need to work on when it comes to african-american students But as Mr. Wilson said, Baylor has given African-American students and alumni great opportunities and friendships that they will cherish for the rest of their lives. Next, I interviewed Monty Brill, who is currently running for mayor of Chattanooga, and who was the first African-American student to graduate from Baylor. In his interview, Mr. Brill talks about his experiences at Baylor. His stories exemplify how Baylor was a welcoming community, and although he was different, welcomed him with open arms. I'm Christ Segal, class of 2022. I'm Monty Brule, class of 1979. Okay, so what was your first thought when your mom said you're going to Baylor? First of all, I don't know if my mother ever said that. I don't know if she ever said you're going to Baylor. I think that uh, uh, we had a conversation about it, and she asked me if I wanted to go. And having you know come out here to do the admissions interview and that sort of thing. I couldn't believe that this was actually a school, you know. It, it, if, it, if it was a school, I thought, well, maybe it's a college or some kind, right? Uh, because it's just such a physically beautiful place. And, uh, and when my mother asked if I wanted to go, I think I said, yes, of course I want to go. Are you kidding me? I, I didn't give it much thought at all. Did she give you any pieces of advice to, like, take... But I think my mother basically just said, you know, you're not going there to make friends. Don't worry about if you know what people might say to you. Just focus on your schoolwork and and take advantage of the great academic opportunity that Baylor's providing you. Um, and that was really my mindset. Of course, I made lots of friends and uh, and really had you know a pretty good time at Baylor. During your time at Baylor, did you experience a feeling of belonging and who, what or who influenced um, in helping you feel that way? No one in my neighborhood could understand why I wanted to go to Baylor. Like, you know, why are you going over there with all those white people, right? And, and while I had a great time during the day, I had the same experience at Baylor as every other student. I wasn't going home to Lookout Mountain or Signal Mountain. I didn't see my classmates on the weekend. Um, so I, I had this uh, rather isolated life. Uh, you know, I mentioned dating uh, earlier. Uh, you know, every, everyone around me was going to GPS at the time because uh, uh, there were no girls at Baylor, you know, trying to find uh, a girlfriend. Uh, 
and uh, let's just say that the the parents of the of the white girls at GPS were not that excited when I called their house to speak to their daughter. <laughs> I know you talked a little bit about going back home after coming to Baylor. So, what experience did you like? Experiences did you have to face, or like hardships did you have to face going back to your community after coming to Baylor and being, you know, around the white kids and stuff? I still face a little bit of it now um, because, as you know, I'm running for mayor of Chattanooga, and I spend a lot of time in a lot of neighborhoods in in Chattanooga. And uh, uh, and quite frankly, I hear today, well, you know, are you black enough? I mean, whatever that means, right? So, so if I'm making the decision. If my mother is making the decision, because my mom was a single mom when I first started at Baylor, uh, her motives were questioned. My motives were questioned. Um, you know, people, you know, would ask, you know, oh, you almost think you're better than the rest of us because, you know, you're, you're going over to Baylor now. Uh, and, and that wasn't the case at all. My mother just wanted me to to have the best educational opportunity that I could have, and uh, and she'd always worked hard to to send me even to Catholic school. Uh, so so Baylor was just another level above what I was accustomed to. But it was something. It was part of our family culture, if you will. It, it wasn't so much whether we were. Um, fitting into the neighborhood because we always just tried to do what was best for us as a family. What was like the hardest part about coming to Baylor? One of the hardest things if you had one. I grew up poor in Alton Park and East Chattanooga, um, but everyone around me was poor. I didn't really know that, that that's what we were, right? And and when I came to Baylor, I was exposed to people who weren't just not poor. They were, they were quite wealthy. And, you know, when I went to college, I ended up starting to work for Jack Lupton. So, you know, at the time, Jack was the, the wealthiest man in the state of Tennessee. So I saw quite the spectrum over the course of my six years here. But I've, I've got to say, the the biggest adjustment was about money. It wasn't about race. It was about this feeling that whatever I'd had was not enough. That I just, you know, my classmates were always doing things that I couldn't afford to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, and again, when you're a teenager, when you're trying to find your place, you're trying to uh, to 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 be your best person. To, to have to say to your friends when they're going out to do something, you know, I really can't afford to do that. Uh, that, that. That was probably the hardest part. What is one piece of advice that you would give to any African-American student before attending Baylor or any other private school that would help them to succeed? I think that two things that are at opposite ends of the spectrum are hope and fear. Uh, if, if you allow your life to be ruled by fear, then you, um, it's, it's going to be hard to, to achieve your goals and to, to be successful however you define it. Hope, on the other hand, is something that everyone can possess. No matter your circumstance, if you have the mindset that tomorrow can be a better day, and you organize your life thinking that tomorrow is going to be a better day, 
then, then that's a great way to, to walk through the world. So, so I would say to any student, one, don't be fearful, just as a matter of course. Don't, don't let fear creep into your, your lives. I mean, look at the political climate we live in today. Look at how people treat one another. That's driven by fear. That's not, that's not even driven by hate. Hate is a product of the fear, but the fear is what is driving all of the unrest that, that we're experiencing right now. And, and, and so, you know, I would just say, live your life because tomorrow, no matter what your circumstance is today, tomorrow can be a different day. It can be better for you. Baylor for me was always a sanctuary. Um, very few bad things occurred to me on the campus of Baylor School. Um, most of the negative reaction that I, uh, that I got about coming to Baylor uh, came from people who really had no day-to-day -day, uh, you know, interaction with the school. They weren't part of my day-to-day -day life. They might have been an alum, someone who'd gone to Baylor you know, 20 years you know, before and they wanted it to be the way it was, the way it used to be. Or it might have been people from my neighborhood who had you know, no concept of it. Um, but I kind of breathed a sigh of relief every day when I came through those gates um, because uh, it was my world. Uh, I, when, I was, when I wasn't here, I was, I was in somebody else's world. You know, there were people coming at me. And I, and I have to say, 99.9% uh, .9 of students and faculty you know, treated me very well. Uh, yeah, sure, I could tell a story about, you know, one time somebody said this or one time somebody did that, but that, that was not my experience by and large. Um, you know, Baylor holds a very special place uh, in my heart to this day. Uh, and driving through the, the gates today, I mean, I, I always feel better when I'm on campus. I was really amazed with Mr. Brule's ability to focus on the positive side of his experience at Baylor and not to be pulled down by the negative experiences based on his identity. Because Mr. Brule was able to focus on the good in life, he was able to thrive at Baylor. However, if we are going to fully give each black student on campus 100% feeling of security and acceptance, we are going to have to address some problems that are going on around Baylor's campus. Mr. Brule's story is filled with the good parts of Baylor, but next we have a conversation with three students who dive into what it is currently like to be an African-American student in Baylor's community. Mr. Tawambi Settles, Baylor's Director of Inclusivity, sat down with us to moderate the discussion. Uh, Tawambi Settles, I'm the Middle School Dean of Students and the Director of Diversity and Inclusion on campus. I'm Evan Haney, and I'm Class of 2023. I'm Ketrick Hill, and I'm Class of 2023. I'm Karai Stagall, and I'm in the class of 2022. Can y'all identify how Baylor's campus has changed from last year to this year, considering everything that we've experienced since uh, leaving with the COVID-19, uh, the racial tensions of the summer? I think that, like Karai said, that some teachers have done a good job, like, trying to understand, like, our standpoint and just try to, like, feel for us and be, um, like, have sympathy but I think some teachers aren't comfortable, and so they've tried to like shy away from these issues and just not turn attention to them. And so I think that's one of like the big changes. What kinds of conversations then are occurring in your classrooms? Uh, dialogue regarding social justice or race relations, um, 
What what type of conversations are occurring in your your uh, social circles? One thing I definitely have to say is, especially in class, more like not in our friend group, like in group conversation, but in class, people are really careful about what they say. It's more like if you feel some type of way, you have like they think about it first and then they say it, which is kind of good. But at the same time, you don't really know what the person is actually feeling because they're saying what they think will not rile up the class or not have someone um, have like a different someone who has a different point of view, like be mad at them or say something to them so it's kind of like we're talking about these situations but it's censored talking it's not like isn't that good isn't that the way that we have these conversations by knowing that you're not stepping on people's toes I mean there used to be a civility in debate a civility in conflict um the last few years or so we've moved away from that it's like you know to be out there to be in somebody's face and not be so civil has been what you know what has been um celebrated so now that we're returning to an era of more civility is that not necessarily is that not good i mean we're returning to more civility but you're we're not getting our point across while being i think we're trying too hard to be civil right now like we're t- we're getting our we're not really getting our point across like we're saying what's on our mind but it's not really sticking with the other group of people with other people it's kind of just like oh well they said this but it's not really no, no passion in it is what I'm trying to say like I feel like we need to have a space where we can talk about these um these situations and like and not have a censorship um I feel like other side of censorship is the other yeah you know the other uh, perspective. They get to say what they want to say, too. So if you're saying we're in here, we don't need as much civility, then you're going to hear a lot of conflicting opinions that are going to that are going to take the debate to the next level. So how would you handle that? If if you're calm and the other group is getting riled up, then they're the ones I think that kind of look bad. And so it's good to ha- to hear the other side of the argument because you kind of have to think about your side of the argument more, think about what you're saying. But I think really this right now the key is to stay calm and get what you're trying to say across the board. Uh, what I have seen to be most effective when you're having these types of conversations are to use what I would call like sidebar illustrations where you kind of take yourselves and the other person's perspective and you put it on another set of problems and issues and then you illustrate them that way so they can see the point that you're making. Then you bring it back to the topic being addressed and a lot of times they can see the breakdown, they can see uh, what you're trying to say and not have as much emotional connection to it where they're not listening at that point. Um, how did the distance apart impact uh, from this summer and you know uh, from the last school year impact the current climate on campus? I mean, we're having these conversations. Do you think that that distance apart has had any impact on how we're having these conversations, how y'all are listening to each other, how y'all are respecting each other, and how y'all are walking uh, on campus daily. Coming back, you have more respect for people's opinions because we went so so long without like having face-to-face communication. So I feel like it's good to have like a way of like communicating at school without being on social media or any of that stuff. So you can kind of have like a perspective where you you know that what you say, like that person means it. And so on social media, you know, a lot of things get said and there's like no no consequences or whatever. People feel like they can say a lot of stuff when they're behind the screen. But that face to face interaction really like shows like what people what people really have to say. 
Shout out to Evan. People are real. People are like over quarantine. People were real big on social media. Mm. We're posting anything, saying whatever they wanted to, and it's because they didn't have to come to school and face everyone. And so coming to school, it kind of over quarantine. You kind of realized who were really your allies in that moment. You saw, oh, I like we saw see someone post something and be like, oh, I didn't know that they thought this way. It's kind of just like you saw people's true colors come out. All right. So a microaggression is a is a. Uh is a flash of racism um, bottled in a joke um, or something of that nature. So if we're all walking, if, if it was a group of black students walking into the dining hall and somebody says, oh, look at them, they're all excited about chicken day today, something like that. Or, um, y'all know, microaggressions, where you know it's racism at the root of the joke or the butt of the joke, but it's not necessarily them coming out saying a racial epithet all right so i think like the biggest microaggression we've had is that a lot of us face like that the fact that a lot of people think that the only reason that we're at baylor is to play sports and that we're not real students that we might take be taking lower classes or just that like our a lot of times some people are like oh are you on scholarship just like assuming that our families aren't doing as well as like our um our white classmates, and so I think that's just part of it, like, how, what are you doing to help the school? And a lot of times people think that the only way we're contributing is with sports. I'm about to say something, but I'm tired of these teachers always talking about some, what's up, homie? I'm like, <laughs> what is, like, I don't have to talk like that. And then they'll, and they'll, they'll automatically assume that you're, you don't have enough money, like, to do anything. Like, um, like, it's just so crazy because they like do the stereotypical things just for you, but you're in a class full of, of white people and they don't say that to that person. There's this phenomenon when you're a minority or marginalized student that comes to a school like this, that you are a ship at sea, meaning you left your neighborhood, you left your friends, you left all your old school friends, pals, right? A lot of them are jealous because number one, like you said, they didn't make the cut Either they didn't make it because of academic reasons or, like you said, athletics, maybe they didn't catch the person's eye. And so they're not here. You are. They're jealous of you. When you go home, it's Ketrick thinks he's better than everybody else or Karaya or Evan thinks they're better than everybody. When it's really not. It's just that you had an advantage. You, know, you had an opportunity. Your parents allowed you to take advantage of it. So you can't hang out with that group. But you're not ne necessarily 100% accepted in this environment because you're black. You're not white, right? So you're a ship at sea. You can't really go home and have that type of relationship with your old friends, and you can't establish those great relationships with your new community as well. You're stuck in the middle. The people that, when I first came over here, they were like, um, like, at my other school, they were like, oh, you think you're better than everybody and stuff like that, especially the people that go to, like, public schools right now. Like you think you're better than everybody, and I don't come around really because, um, because of like I'm always on campus. But well, you always have work homework to do. Yeah. So you, the demands here are totally different, and they pull you away from being able to interact with them. But they don't understand exactly. Like it's like oh, um, they'll get mad because you um, because you um, had stuff to do, and then you have to cancel on them, and then they'll be like oh. Big Baylor boy and all that. I don't like they that. They don't understand the demands that you all have. You want to speak to that too, Karai? Have you experienced? 
that phenomenon? Yes, I still talk to a bunch of my friends um, from Nashville that I left to come here, and I could complain about like the littlest thing, like, oh, I had so much homework tonight, and they're like, well, you left, it was your decision to go to a hard school, like, well, that's your fault, you put that on yourself, and that's just kind of like, you kind of want support from them through like this whole thing and transitioning and being at a new school with new people and not as much of a minority, and like they kind of don't understand. Throughout this whole process, I've kind of seen so many black people come in and then change. And like, even I, like through going through middle school, I could like definitely see like, you kind of have to like go with the environment. And I kind of changed a little bit too, like just from sixth grade to eighth grade. And it's kind of like, you don't want your kid to have to go through that. Feel like they have to change to assimilate into a culture. And just seeing so many black students come in and, have, and like assimilate, like not even trying to, but like they just kind of assimilate. I think that just like coming to a school like Baylor and like, even like friends that are outside of Baylor, sometimes they think like, oh, like since you went to Baylor, like you lost some of your blackness or like whatever, and like they feel like you've like changed on them or like that, like you're losing some of your culture. So I think that just like one of the big things about that, big things about being at Baylor is that when you're here, like you have to like stay yourself, like you can't change and like try to act like other people. You just have to be true to yourself. Well, I think that is the point of this whole roundtable discussion to get enough of these issues and enough of y'all's experience out there so that y'all don't have to feel pressure to assimilate, that people um, accept you for being here, for being who you are, and that you all feel a sense of belonging, that you're gonna be protected, respected, and honored for your presence here on campus. Brianna Taylor. Ahmaud Arbery and George Floyd. These are names that we will never forget. Without even knowing it, these people sparked a much-needed change in America that has been ignored for a really long time. It is horrible that it took the deaths of three unarmed individuals to bring to light the situation that has been put on the back burner for way too many years. This situation caused people to want to change, and that is always the first step towards moving to an equal world. It feels good to be able to sit down and talk about our experiences. There is definitely work that still needs to be done, but I am excited about a future Baylor that is the same experience for all. Students from many places and backgrounds, but one big family and one big house. Well, in America, we all live in the same house, the American house. And it doesn't matter whether we are black or white, Latino or Asian American or Native American. On this little planet, this little spaceship that we call Earth, we must learn to live together, as Dr. King would say. But we will perish as fools. Can I give up? Can I give in? Can I become bitter or hostile? We have to march on with hope, with faith, and with love. Special thanks to Scott Wilson and to the students and faculty who courageously shared their experiences. Most notably, Evan Haney, Katie Hill, Elijah Howard, and Mr. Tawambi Settles. To Monty Brule for sharing his story and paving the way for students like us. And to the late congressman and civil rights activist, John Lewis, who passed this year and whose words closed out this episode. 
Thank you for inspiring a new generation to march on.